Welcome to the New Monastics Podcast, where we'll be discussing all aspects of the contemplative life and interspirituality in the context of modernity. On each episode, we will choose a topic to explore with one of today's leading teachers or thinkers. The New Monastics Podcast is a project of Caris Foundation for New Monasticism and Interspirituality, which is dedicated to the emergence of a newly conceived contemplative life of embodied spirituality and sacred activism. Welcome to the New Monastics Podcast. I'm Natano, one of your hosts. And I'm Daniel, your other host for the show. Today we have my friend and colleague, Ramon Gabrielov Parrish, a professor at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, who teaches courses on foundations in contemplative learning, diversity, and social identity. He also focuses on the equity dimensions of the environment through courses in food and environmental justice. Ramon is committed to the revival of rites of passage and bringing the sacred into everyday living. So welcome, everyone. Thank you so much, Ramon, for joining us. We wanted to dialogue today about spiritual ecology or eco-spirituality. And just before hopping into it, I was wondering if you could provide a little bit of a, an idea of what that term means. I myself am not super familiar. Yeah, I mean, I can try. I think I've also heard the term green spirituality or green faith. So eco-spirituality, I think we could approach it from a lot of different ways. But I think that the thrust of it is that we're talking about spiritualities that view our relationship with the earth and our embeddedness in the natural environment as sacred and as central to our spiritual pursuits, to our religious concerns, to our ethics. And yeah, really just kind of looking at the earth itself and our interconnection with the earth and its various species as something that is, is sacred or, or even holy, depending on you know, the view. And I think that the term eco-spirituality or green spirituality, is, it's a new one, right? It's kind of like um, engaged spirituality. It's this new term because there's a sense that spirituality prior to you know, modern era was about withdrawing. And so you have to put the label engaged on it. It's like compassionate conservatism. It's like, it seems <laughs> like an oxymoron, you know? <laughs> and so I think some people feel that same way about eco-spirituality. It's this idea that the world is, is not the main event and that matter is not the main event and that spirit is separate from matter in its nature and that that's what people are supposed to pursue. And so the eco-spirituality, their reorientation is to say that the sacredness that we sought in seclusion or in the seclusion of spirit or in the seclusion of the word or text or what have you can actually be found in the text of nature and in our relationship to nature. I think even having to use such a word, you know, to talk about engaged spirituality or to talk about green faith, eco-spirituality, spiritual ecology, it kind of names a problem by itself. Because at another point in our time, in our history, in our relationship to our own spirituality, the green aspect would be so present that you wouldn't have to name it. So the fact that, that we're naming it now shows that it's been absent for a while and we're trying to create a new marriage. But it really names a problem. Like, we shouldn't actually have to separate it out that way. Like, there shouldn't be a spirituality that isn't close to the earth. You know, how can we have anything that's not close to the earth? So, there's a kind of artificiality to the way we've been living that makes it almost necessary now to bring in these words and reconnect something with a hyphen, eco-spirituality, so on. So, it's, it's a really interesting, almost commentary on modernity itself to use such a word. Yeah, and it's interesting in, in the way both of you are speaking about it. Part of what hit me is that this notion of a transcendent focused religion really seems only true of certain traditions or religions. And especially in indigenous traditions across the world, we see this focus on earth as central and less of a transcendent focus that is somehow separate from materiality. 
And so I'm wondering if y'all can speak a little bit to that in terms of how is this maybe different across different traditions and this kind of non-eco-spirituality that we've seen propagated and is maybe commonplace at this point in a lot of cultures. How did that develop and where is that coming from? Mm -hmm. You want to touch that, Ramon? Yeah, I'll, I'll try. I mean, I think for one thing, you know, we have this whole kind of study of religion and we have almost this sort of like teleological view that there's this really kind of linear evolution of religions, even like the integral folks, right? If you look at some of their views, it's sort of like the magical, the mythic, you know, the rational, the integral or whatever. So it's sort of this idea that there's been this linear progression and the linear progression ideas tend to deal with a sense that the new is better, that it is qualitatively larger, richer, more inclusive. And if you look at it in that sense, it's like, okay, maybe the reclamation of the magical and the archaic is a reclamation. But if you kind of dissolve that view a little bit and you see that there are simultaneously these different religious expressions, some of which seem to have arisen earlier in time than others, but they're more sort of simultaneously coexisting, more so than linearly stacked on each other, then it's like, well, you see that a lot of peoples around the world, a lot of indigenous peoples around the world, a lot of peoples whose lives are not primarily based in urban reality, they source their relationship to divinity from their environment. You know, they see that the places that they live are the center of the universe. They're the birthplace of the universe. They're the place where you go for prayer, the same place you go for water, the same place that you go for a lookout on top of the mountain. You know what I'm saying? This, the creatures that you live with, that you eat, that might eat you, they're all kind of part of a pantheon, you know? And I think when we get to places or times in history where humanity's primary mode of existence is urban, then we start making God out into the hierarchical structure of the urban society, right? So you go back to ancient Egypt, you go Samaria, China, you know, all over the earth, you see people start to say that, oh, God is the sovereign. And then there's orders of angels or various spiritual beings. And then here we are, the lowly serfs of humanity, just trying to obey God's will. So, so those urban-based religions then have their, their universalizing imperial kind of tendency, you know, and that's, that's definitely the Abrahamic religions are really strong with that, but you see it in Buddhism as well. And then this is something else I was listening to you all's other uh, recording about the second axial age and um, just the, the, the concept of idolatry, I think is a really powerful one that has something to do with the disengagement from matter and the distrust of matter. You know, and then I think in a lot of the traditions that are coming out of India, which includes Buddhism to some extent, there's a sense that we have a compulsive relationship to the senses and that the senses just drag us on and that whatever the kind of inner sheaths of the human are, they can't even be noticed because the senses are so loud. So I think there was a stage where people really wanted to withdraw and disengage from the senses and they watched how people abused, like, you need to eat and eating sacred, but you're slathering your face with meat and oil, you know, mm -hmm. back up a little bit, <laughs> you know, back up a little bit and get a grip on yourself. But then I think that led into this really intense abstraction and this really intense uh, hatred even, you know. Yeah, I feel like we're at this moment of cultural opportunity, which is quickly passing, and what I mean by that is, okay, so, you know, you kind of named the problem, Daniel, like, how did we get to this remove, where we're removed from nature? I always say, you know, it's ridiculous, you know, we're the one element of nature that can think that it's not natural. You know, <laughs> yeah. we talk about us and nature. That's a ridiculous statement. We are the fruit of the planet. So, how did we get to this place of remove and yes, yeah, see, I mean, you could look back and say, well, the more we created civilization, you know, and the more we were removed from the environment and, and buildings that isolated us and kept us safe and warm, the more 
we lost this relationship. And I think that that did happen, and that is probably responsible for a lot of our problem. It's also, from another perspective, an evolutionary advance. It allowed us to develop certain abstractions that are helpful for us. But there's actually an interesting teaching from uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chedin, where he was talking about the idea of divergence, that on a planet with limited population, people spread out, and evolution spreads out. But on a planet with limited surface area, as that population increases, the people that spread out will, over time, meet again. Mm. You know, we'll connect. So, one aspect of evolution is the diverging and the going in different directions, but then there comes a point of convergence on limited surface area. And I think, you know, say 150 years ago, we had a critical moment of convergence. Mm. And I think that critical moment of convergence pretty much happened on this landmass, North America, where the European population, um, and this is not only true here, but it's a major convergence, the European population met the Native American population which in one sense, at least, is a kind of holdover consciousness, earth-based, relational to nature. And I think the opportunity of that convergence, now we know how it went, it went badly for indigenous peoples, but maybe also something else happened. We met the version of us that was still connected and had the opportunity of learning again what that meant. And what I'm saying now is like, have we taken advantage of that opportunity? Because now it's quickly slipping away. That's when it happened. And then we had, you know, almost a genocide of a people and an assumption that they were wrong and backward when really they held a secret that we needed to revalorize our experience. It's not that the abstraction and the divergence was wrong, but, you know, in order to make all of that, what we had acquired through the divergence, meaningful, we needed the secret from our origins, our connection to the planet and the way of living where everything was speaking to us, the rocks and the earth and the sky and the wind and the water. So, somehow we lost our naturalness. And I think with it quickly slipping away 150 years now, like, we have to jump on it. We have to jump on and reclaim what that moment really meant for human consciousness and possibility and our survival. So I kind of see it like that. What strikes me about the way you're characterizing that in the tunnel is that's from the perspective of the European colonizers encountering indigenous peoples in the Americas. And so just to bring maybe some balance, I'm curious what the flip side is. If either of you have something to say about that. Mm-hmm. Hard to speak to, you know, without speaking for. Yeah. On, you got thoughts? Yeah, I got thoughts. I don't have any solutions. I'm, I'm super <laughs> confused about these things myself. But I think the third part of that equation in the Americas is black people. Yeah. You know, obviously the Europeans and Africans had already had contact with each other for centuries, which isn't really widely discussed, actually. And in the African continent and in Black Africa, you have both urban societies and rural or what we often think of as indigenous societies. And so I think that the peoples, indigenous peoples of the Americas had an experience of invaders coming to their land and strangers coming to their land and not having an understanding of the sacredness of land. Um, There's this great book by Leslie Marmon Silko called Ceremony. And, you know, she kind of just talks about how, like, a lot of the, and it's, it's in a fictionalized, fictionalized form, but a lot of the indigenous seers saw the coming of the white people. And they were like, oh, this is a, this is a sick people. This is a people that is, their vision is covered. So I think that's one perspective. And I think as far as Black people go, our experience was that we were brought to a different land that wasn't our own. And that we had to reestablish a sense of sacredness with this new land, you know, and, and, and in a lot of ways that was done through agriculture 
And it was done through maroon societies and maroon situations where black people left or ducked out into the woods and developed, actually, interestingly enough, a kind of Christianity that was that was small and community-based mm-hmm. and communal. And it was a church without a roof, you know what I'm saying? And it was a church where certain rituals around water could really baptism, libation could kind of, you know, cut off from the African context or African cultural context kind of could regrow. So it was like, I think our experience was actually about making a new sacred relationship to a land that was, and a people that in many cases that was hostile to us, you know? And then this is all part of the larger conversation about decolonization, because I think from some decolonized perspectives, they're saying, look, industrialization didn't come from our cultures. This didn't come from our peoples. Deschardins talked about that, the wraparound effect. And I love that you brought Deschardins in there. I got more to say about him in a minute. But the wraparound effect of humanity covering the globe, okay? But then the other threshold is the threshold of industrialization. And there's probably several after that. And industrialization, he says, kind of extends each human being's or those have access to its body power and mind power. And so suddenly you're one person in a room, but you're taking up all the space and land and energy, you know? So that threshold hit, and that's really what's causing the planet to go into this state of crisis. And then that's reflecting back on the different spiritual traditions, particularly say the Abrahamic traditions. And it's like, hey, look, we have this emergency. It's a planet-wide emergency Like, how are our traditions going to reckon with that planet-wide emergency? You know, the Abrahamic faiths are interesting because they have this concept of apocalypse. Let's just throw that word in the mix. You know, they have this concept that at a certain point, the corruption of humanity reaches such a pitch that God themselves has to step in and stop it. And when we look at what's happening on the earth, it's the closest real historical event that we have to something that meets that mythic description. And so industrialization has forced this issue of what response can the faith traditions carried by the Abrahamic impulse have to this. And in the decolonized context, a lot of people are saying, look, like this isn't how humanity is even supposed to live. We're not supposed to be living stacked up in cities. And, uh, you know, I saw this one storytelling and i think it's coming from the indigenous peoples of the southwest you know the tale peoples and they were like we had a world before actually in our cosmologies we had cities we had technology and it corrupted humanity to such a degree that the creator mashed it down and we had to start back over mm-hmm. so one of the biggest questions that i have and this is kind of wrestles with Teilhard de chardin's perspective which I have a lot of respect for, is the technological urban way of life, since it's not, does not appear to be sustainable, is it even the right way for humanity to live? Yeah, and from a historical perspective, we have to wrestle with some difficult truths because we idealize you know, the indigenous peoples, but the indigenous peoples have also gone through cycles, and I think this is what you're referring to, Ramon, like now I have to go back in my head a bit, but I think it was the Anasazi. Like, where did the Anasazi go? They disappeared. But historically, I mean, if if we look at the evidence, it looks like they may have deforested themselves. They may have, you know, used up the resources of their environment in a way that led to destruction. And so, we may be going through these cycles as, as human beings of losing good relationship to our resources and our planet because... We step out of a self-understanding of being the planet. And I'm glad you brought up Africa because that was the other piece I was thinking of as I considered divergence and convergence. That's the other major place roughly 150 years ago where we had clear indigenous living close to the planet and then colonization and imperialism stepped in and it met again in a terrible way because technology overwhelmed peoples that were living close to the earth. And again, what's the opportunity? And then I I think Black people in America, that's a really interesting case, because then it's transportation of the indigenous people of one land 
to another land. And it brings about a really interesting relationship that I think Black people in America have always felt with Native American peoples, a kind of kinship. I mean, so many interesting issues, but then it comes back to what you're saying, Ramon, like, you know, um, Abraham Joshua Heschel, wonderful spiritual teacher, said with regard to the Holocaust, some are guilty, all are responsible. You know, there are people to blame, you know, in terms of specific acts, but we don't escape all of us being responsible. And one of the ways that relates to now is like, we've all got this problem Mm -hmm. together. We've all got it now. How are we living in such a way that is destroying ourselves, like individually in our bodies, as, you know, unique people, as small cultures are disappearing. This is the moment. And it's kind of scary to say that, but it's true. Mm -hmm. Um, How are we living? And it's clear we're living in such a way that is not sustainable for long-term survival. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do? Just to just to drop that one on you. <laughs> yeah, there's two threads I want to pick up. Hey, Ramon, I feel like you did my job for me, which is you raised a great next question, which is what are these traditions to do about the ecological crisis? And in what way can the traditions, even if they have been forces of this alienation from Earth, how could they actually be tools for a healthy engagement with the earth or interbeing with the earth. And then when you were speaking to Tunnel, it brought up this question of shared ground, literally shared ground, the earth. And in the context of our conversations throughout the time of this podcast, you know, we have a lot of focus on this question of interspirituality and the meeting of different traditions. And I have this curiosity around can the earth be a potentially positive unifying aspect for peoples of many different faiths and religious and spiritual expressions? And is there a way we could adopt maybe as a planet, a new sacred or not new, but just a sacred view of the earth that could be more or less agreed upon and yet not hinder any of the diversity of religious and spiritual expression. Like different peoples will have all of the uniqueness in terms of how they express that sacred relationship with the earth, but could it be a unifying ground? So I know I asked two questions that went in two totally different directions, but whatever you're inspired to respond to in either of those questions. Yeah. Um, I think maybe I'll try the first one first is what can the traditions do? I think maybe one way to approach that is like, what can the traditions do that regular politics say can't do? Because, you know, another part of the trouble here is the explosion of discoveries that happened around the time of the you know European incursion into the Americas, Africa the Middle East eventually, you know, Far East, Australia, right? Like the European colonization appears to be the instrument that made planetization a shared reality. And there's these massive discoveries that shatters the cosmologies of pretty much everybody, (laughs) you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And yet empirical science doesn't really have the business of providing human beings with a basis for morality. You know, there's some attempts here and there, but it doesn't. And it doesn't have a tradition of, at the very least, a poetry built up that speaks to our core. And even though there's a quest to have everyone be scientifically literate, and at least in democratic society, science is specialized. Now, the religious traditions, particularly the the traditions that are relying on texts, have been also specialized for a long time. But they've spread, and there are billions of people around the planet that relate to these traditions in the deepest parts of themselves. And we've walked ourselves, because the tunnel's right, right? At the end of the day, we're all, we're all interconnected. And so anybody's action across the street is eventually going to come and, and get you. Anybody's action across the border is going to come and get you. And you may not want it, blah, 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 but it's there. It's at everybody's doorstep. 
So first of all, that's a teaching in and of itself. That's what so many of the faiths have been trying to teach us. You are your brother's keeper. Of course, everybody has to stand up and do what they can do. Everyone has to inspect their own conscience. But we also have to be concerned about what's happening over there. And what the faiths can do and what they have a tradition of doing is calling people from the deepest parts of themselves and asking that deepest part of us to engage and be involved and to give our all. And actually to believe that there's something beyond our individual all and our human all that has our back, you know? Because if we look at what's happening here, I live in a town that just basically had a firestorm a few months ago, and it came out of nowhere. And I'm told that it burned one-seventh of all the homes in this little town here in less than 24 hours. And this is in the middle of the most prosperous part of the American continent. People here are established, and this fire just took it, took homes out like that. You know, so if we're actually going to face this crisis, it's so big, the level of cooperation that's required, you know, it's a universalizing thing. And the level of cooperation that's required and this scale of action, it's basically going to be miraculous. If we're going to respond in any effective way, it's going to be a miracle. And so I think the faiths actually provide us with a tradition of responding from your depth, of being concerned about your sister, your brother, your fellow, and of believing in the impossible and believing that the impossible has your back. Mm-hmm. So many thoughts based on you know what you're saying, Ramon. Some of them are about historical ironies, like from one perspective, the pandemic has made us one planet. Here is a sickness that is not limited by geography that spread around the planet like wildfire. As if to prove the point, we are one planet now. There's no problem for one people off somewhere else. The problem of one is the problem of all now. And the pandemic made that remarkably clear. And out of it was, people can argue this, but quite possibly the the largest successful planetary scientific experiment of all time. Mm. Cooperation between scientists all over the world to come up with a solution very, very quickly. And from that perspective, that's remarkably hopeful. So, you know, it's kind of odd, like, you know, you want it to be this messianic, beautiful moment where, you know, the thing that unites us is a moment where we saw like how beautiful everyone was, but actually what united us was the pandemic, you know? If we take the opportunity of witnessing what actually happened, depends on how you look at it. And it made me think of like India and the liberation of India from British colonial rule. The thing that allowed India to be liberated from British colonial rule was the English language and British trains. Mm. (laughs) It gave them one common language to use among the diverse languages of India, which had separated them. And also geography separated them. British trains, British English, then allowed (laughs) the Indian subcontinent to unify and kick out the colonizer. That's a historical irony. You know, it's like history and the planet are messy. That was spurred by you saying, you know, like, you know, imperialism made us one planet in a weird sort of way. There's terrible consequences for that, but now we're one planet. So, I think if we're going to move forward, we have to own our messiness and not ask for it to not be messy, to realize, Hmm. you know, as it says in Deuteronomy, the blessing and the curse. The blessing and the curse are the same thing. The same action, Mm -hmm. as you say in Buddhism, has both positive and negative consequences. And now we're at the moment, we've got it. What are we going to do with it? And then from the perspective of like, How do we act from our traditions to do something positive? When I got engaged a few years ago, my fiancé was a vegan. I was very much not a vegan. (laughs) Definitely a hamburger-eating guy. (laughs) And, you know, I thought a lot about it because, you know, it's going to mean a lifestyle shift. You know, you get married to somebody, you got to deal with these different value systems and I wasn't against it, you know, but I had an addiction to my burgers um, and everything else. And one day I was reading 
the Parsha of the week. So in Judaism, you know, the, the biblical text is split in split into Parshiot sections, portions. And it was the portion that's called Noah, Noah, about the flood. And this kind of planet-wide catastrophe, and then finally the ark kind of lands, you know, the waters recede, and and now there's this question of, like, post-catastrophe, how is this small element of the human family going to survive? And there's a great kind of revelatory moment where God kind of speaks to Noah. And basically, the words say, you can kill to survive but there is a cost for it. There's a cost for blood. You know, there's a karmic cost for spilling blood, even in order to survive. And when you looked closely at the passage, this old, old passage in the Bible, in the Torah, it kind of suggested that there's a kind of equation for living on the planet, that you can eat meat for survival, but that's really what it is. It's for survival. And inasmuch as you don't have to eat meat to survive, that's better. And it almost suggested a kind of 80-20 rule as I read it. Like, the human human being actually probably should live about 80% on vegetable life. And in certain situations, might be okay with up to 20% meat. And beyond that, you're going to run into issues, karmic issues, health issues, and so on. And so, this revelatory moment for Noah, where God is actually speaking, so the big revelation with big R, became a revelatory moment for me in our context, and even with my local problem of having a vegan fiancé. And I went, yeah, that's right. The 80-20 rule makes sense to me. And like, I had my own personal revelation there. So, I think we have to reread our texts with the consciousness that is aware of the needs of the moment. And the revelations are going to come because good scripture is ongoing revelation. Like it can be reread and reread. So that's kind of cool moment. But similarly catastrophic sort of time, that Noah moment. So I don't know. Those are fascinating for me. So I'm just excited about what you were, what you were saying, Ramon. If you're enjoying the episode, please consider subscribing to our Patreon to help support the production of the podcast. Subscriptions begin at $1. All patrons receive access to bonus content, curated resources, and exclusive patron events, including live Q&As. For more information, please check out the Patreon link in the show notes, and thanks for listening. What you're both saying raises the question for me, how much of this process of traditions, religious or spiritual, being helpful in regards to the ecological crisis is about rereading the texts, making conscious choices around how we engage certain religions or traditions. And how much is it about, at least for some people's reclaiming maybe quote unquote earlier kinds of religious or spiritual expressions that are more grounded in the earth. Does that make sense? Like one sense is we can read Judaism, Christianity, et cetera, and make it more ecologically friendly. But then there are other traditions that are more inherently earth-based or already have the technology or understandings in place where it doesn't require a kind of reconfiguring of the tradition, but maybe more of a reclamation. So I'm wondering if you can speak to those seemingly separate kind of lanes of this work? Um, I don't know. You know, the way I just framed it, it sounded like rereading the text. And that's definitely what I was talking about. On the other hand, that's not how I experienced it. I experienced it as, no, the text was so old that it was coming from a time when we had better relationship. In fact, I felt like I could only reread it properly now with a historical understanding, like uh, the philosopher Gerald Hurd said, you know, back in the 1950s, that this is an interesting moment because it's one of the first times where human beings can walk the floor of history and see from whence they've come. Now, that's a huge moment for the human being when we can see what our trajectory has been. So, if you look at it like a Renaissance painting of a biblical scene, everybody's dressed in Renaissance clothing, 
because like they can't think outside of their context. There's not so much a sense of like a, the historical clothing and so on. We're still among the first generations that can walk the floor of history, as Heard said. And what he thought that meant was that now we have the possibility of conscious evolution. When you can see where you've been and how you've evolved to a point, then you can imagine how you could evolve to another point. And so, again, a huge historical moment. But with that view of history, I could see, oh, they had better relationship. They understood the karma more naturally for killing in the environment. Killing may be a necessity, but there is always a cost. And so, I experienced it as a kind of revelation of a consciousness that was not divorced the way mine might be. And so, I don't think it's just a pure rereading of our texts, but um, a reacquaintance with realities about which they might speak to which we've become divorced. So, for instance, if we continue to use this example from Judaism, you know, the Bible stuff is old. <laughs> like, it's really old. And many of the things it talks about are very, very connected to what we'd call earth-based spirituality, including like, if you're going to write a Torah scroll, you use natural materials. If you're going to make the prayer implements that are called tefillin, the, the, the boxes that you wear on your arm and with the straps that you wrap on, those are natural materials. And they were probably originally conceived of as like natural antenna for connecting with God. You know, like we used to do with TVs, like we'd put these rabbit ears on there and even put some foil on there to catch the signal. The tefillin may have been something like that and seemed to have been. And it's only later generations that lose connection to what was so natural there. So, the Judaism that we're looking back at was probably highly, to use the word, shamanic. And it's only later interpreters that lost relationship to that natural shamanism that interpret it differently. So, I think now we have the possibility of looking at a very kind of organic wisdom in some of our very, very early traditions. You know, and then the other part of your question is that, yeah, well, it's not enough to read the text. You have to live that way. Like, go outside. <laughs> in some ways, like, it's not that complicated. Go for a walk. Stop talking about the sky and its wonders and its beauty. <laughs> like, just go be there. Put your hands in the earth. Like, if you've never grown anything, there's something you don't know about the experience of life. You know, put your hands in the dirt. Not more complicated than that. Though we do have to do some complicated work intellectually. We have sophisticated brains. They want to do something. But then they've done so much in that direction that we're divorced from our bodies and the way they feel and the wisdom that, that speaks from it all the time. Yeah. You know, I feel that some of this question kind of depends on who you are. Because, like, one of the big questions now is, like, how do we have unity and diversity? How do we have diversity and unity? And, you know, for a lot of peoples who are the direct um, victims of colonization, this recent wave of colonization, a lot of it is about reclaiming. A lot of it is about finding or expanding traditions that have been shredded and that are localized ways of praying and localized ways of worship and localized ways of, of sacredness, you know, and that being the grounding that folks need to resist the kind of alienation that comes a lot from industrialized and now electronic societies, you know? And then for other peoples, I think, even amongst a lot of Black people, a lot of Black folks are not going to go the route of exploring indigenous African traditions or even syncretic African traditions. They're Christians. And if we are going to make this kind of mass, you know, 90 degree turn towards preserving the Earth's ecosystem, it's like more energy efficient to work with the faith that people already accept rather than trying to transform or go and move into a different faith. So I think it really depends on the, on the person and on the group. And then also, you know, Natano, you spoke about like how we can return to the texts and the teachings over and over 
you can do it over the course of a lifetime and understand different things. And now we can do it like as collectives on a historical level. And, you know, you can look in the Old Testament and Psalms and like this praise of the beauty of nature and the richness of nature and the the knowledge that like the the things that grow in the field are good and that it's a blessing to have abundance. And I'm speaking from the Christian tradition because that's actually where I come from. You know, I don't have as much knowledge textually and scripturally about other traditions. But, you know, you can look at Jesus's metaphor of, you know, I'm the vine and ye are the branches. Like, you know, he was looking around to try to describe something cosmological and looking around and it's like, what do the people know? They know wine. They know olives. You know, they know the way this bush is shaped. And if I tell them that, they can get it. And so I think this is what we can do. And, and I think is what, is what is being done in a lot of the existing traditions is really just looking at the ways in which people already, or the teachers, the sages, the prophets already used the book of nature as the way to emphasize the teachings. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like, I mean, what did Moses do? He went out into the desert. He went on the mountaintop. You know, what if, what if and I think this is happening, we start orienting towards, hey, let's not do church in a building. Or every now and again, let's go to the mountaintop and let's pray at the top of the mountain. You know, why did they leave the city? Why was it so important to get away from the city, away from the village? And so, you know, those practices are, there are communities, I think, that are, are starting to do this um, or returning to it as far as the Abrahamic faiths. And I think as far as a lot of peoples whose traditions never left that, at least not by their own decision or historical trajectory, there's also a sort of return and a strengthening of that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, Jesus goes into the desert, Moses goes into the desert, Muhammad goes into the desert. They all go, all go into the desert for 40 days. And it's like, maybe it's a detox. Mm. <laughs> And even during the pandemic, you know, as a, as a Sufi leader, couldn't do zikr inside and then started doing it outside in the woods with a small group of people. And it was like, why haven't I been doing this the whole time? <laughs> it's, an, it's an amazing experience to do it there. And so, you know, sometimes that's, I think, what it is. Like, it's not that we don't want to live in these houses, but the addiction to these houses leads to a diminishment of our humanity in mm-hmm. a certain kind of way. You know, Hazard Anayat Khan, the, the Sufi master, used to talk about the reclamation of one's inheritance. This is like, you may not know it, you know, but 10 generations back, your ancestor was a king or a queen, you know. He said, that's in you, but you have to reclaim your inheritance. It's not automatically that you, you know, you should put a crown on and act like people should bow to you. He says, you need to reclaim sovereignty, kingliness, queenliness, be that, you know. So, there is something in us that has to reclaim our sovereignty and relationship to the planet, reclaim our relationship to naturalness. Um, needs to stop overcomplicating. Like I was saying, just go outside. <laughs> you know, it's like, you can philosophize about, you know, the importance of going outside and then not go. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a little bit what we do. We talk too much about it and never get there, you know? It's like, you could talk about the beauty of a kiss, but it's not a kiss. And at some point, somebody wants you to shut up and do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I think there's a little bit of, of that in us. And I was thinking about something else, too. Like, I tend to read a lot of old literature, at least I used to. And then I read newer things, and I feel like, oh, there's a poverty of language today. Like, our metaphors are weak. Because the metaphors that people were using in the past were so nature-based, reality-based, you know, bodies that give birth and animals and, you know, storms. And there were lots of clever ways of making, you know, jokes. And now it seems all our references are to pop culture and technology that is just shifting minute by minute and has no, like, staying power. Because we're only in the house, we're only in the phone, and like now we don't have any reference to the things that are perennial in life. Our references are to things that are changing by the moment. 
and it makes us kind of thin and vacuous. Mm. And that's not to be judgy about technology, but it is to be realistic about the impact. If we don't have some really strong relationship to the natural world and the perennial experience of being human, I think so many of our psychological problems are because we're not owning the millennia of evolutionary impact. You know, we are the product of evolution. So much of what we do is based in a need on the planet. And now we're somehow uh, extracted from it and in these boxes. But the design of our bodies and our beings were for other things. And so I think now we're confused because we don't have any relationship to those natural expressions of our bodies. And so I think we're in a really weird place, uh, in a very tight box of being divorced from what the human body is and the body of the planet is, which is a spiritual crisis. Yeah. It's unpleasant imagery, but in regards to ecological crisis, I've always thought that it was very apropos to think of human beings as a cancer on the planet, something that has grown out of control like a cell that served a function but is now rapidly growing and actually affecting in a negative way the health of the totality. So for what that's worth. And I might just shift it a little bit to say it's the lack of being a human being. Mm. You know, mm. it's because we're not being the human being. It's a distortion of the human being. I think the human being, if we could be in relationship to ourselves as such, would be all right on the planet. You know, we are the planet. So what is the distortion? You know, how did the cancer grow? It's a problem of a limitation of consciousness. The seeing of ourselves as separate, that becomes the cancer. You know, because the cancer destroys the body, which is its host. It's really short-sighted. You know, it's like, I'm going to eat all this. <laughs> And then it's out and like, and the cancer dies with the host. So it's like, how do we write that? That's what we're trying to dialogue on, I think. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I just thought Ramon had the answer and we were just like. <laughs> we were just going to get enlightened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate, first of all, the question or raising that. And the tunnel, I really appreciate your response because I think this is a common trope. Mm -hmm. and the environmental movement. And I think it has real consequences. It has real psychological consequences. I feel like I'm seeing this in the younger generations, but it makes people feel like, why should I take up space on this planet? Why should I be alive? Why should I have children? You know, And the question of children is a, is a really big and, and thorny question, but people really think, well, nature would be better off without us. Now, there's different teachings on this stuff, but first of all, one of the worlds that I cross into sometimes is the kind of contemporary discussions and renewed practices around rites of passage. And kind of like this question about eco-spiritualities, contemporary rites of passage movements are totally indebted to indigenous rites of passage practices. And there's a saying that is from, I don't know what part of the African continent exactly, but basically it says that if a person isn't initiated, they're not a human being. And you can interpret that teaching in a lot of different ways. But I think the idea is that you're born, but at a certain point, if you're going to be born again, you actually have to like puncture something. You have to sort of, you got to mess with some part of the human nature that's swollen and you got to pop it open. And that that's what makes us human. Like we're born the human animal. And if the human animal grows up without being initiated, you know, in the, the New Testament, they talk about the beast. And a beast is an animal. Let me be clear about that. The beast is not an animal, you know, because the beast is an entity that has the intelligence of humanity, but it does not have the connection to the vastness of creation. And it doesn't have a sense of awe about things. It's just concerned with ingenious ways to feed its own pleasures. The goal of initiation was to make you a human being, as in you look left and right and you think about who's next to you and you feel from the inside and you can feel them from the inside. And in fact, you can look around and see the whole of creation and you can feel it inside of you. That sensitivity, that's the basis of culture. That's the basis of discipline. That's mm. the basis of any kind of ethics, any kind of justice, 
And that's something that people can actually miss out on, you know, and that part of the purpose of religion is to actually help people to remind them to go back to that, that soft part, you know? Now, here's another thing that I think, you know, in some kind of uh, ecological, eco-philosophy, eco-feminist, and I think to some extent indigenous conversations, but more the way in which they get pulled into Western and academic discourses. But there is this idea that the human being is just another animal. And also in the scientific world, there's sort of that idea too, but not. And here's, here's something else I want to put out here, not as an absolute point of view, but something I think is unique in some of the Abrahamic religions. And also I think you find it too in, in the religions that come out of India, which is that humanity clearly demonstrates an ability that the animal kingdom doesn't have to the same density. In the Judeo-Christian and Islamic tradition, that's translated as humanity is made in the image of God. And I think that's a really important powerful teaching when we think about should we live or not? Are we a cancer on this earth? I think the earth wants us. I think it wants us in large numbers. And that gets back to that Teilhard de Chardin thing where it's like there's a a chemical change that humanity and I think these hands, we got these hands and we have this unique stature amongst animals. We have the stature of trees and the mobility of wolves. And we got the, the prehensile ability of an octopus. You know what I'm saying? We're like a combination of a lot of different previous evolutionary developments that went pretty well. Mm-hmm. And so I think the earth wants us and it wants us to affect a chemical or an alchemical change on the earth. And it can't do it unless it combines all these different evolutionary intelligences that have already been somewhat successful in order for it to do it. And I think that's part of that teaching of we're made in the image of God or we are unique and needed. That's great. You know, like you say, the planet wants us. You know, I immediately thought the planet loves us. And of course it does because we're its children. You know, we're her children. Mm -hmm. Of course she loves us. And of course she feels pain and disappointment over the path we've taken. But any doubt that she loves us? You know, she gave birth to us. Of course she loves us. And what you're describing, you know, with our capacity, it's so great. You know, I I mentioned the philosopher Gerald Hurd earlier, and he was an evolutionary philosopher who was into spirituality. But one of the things he said about us is that the thing about us as human beings is that we're the only non-specialized creature on the planet. The other creatures are so specialized, you know, like perfect claws for doing this one thing or perfect nose that is built just for finding this thing. We're non-specialized. We can do so many different things. We're general in a way. And that means he said that we're unfinished. Our evolution is actually ongoing. And that's part of what we are as the human animal. And there's a really interesting discussion that happens in spiritual discourse. And there's this distinction like between our divine qualities and our animal qualities. But in this specialized context in which those are discussed, it doesn't mean that the animal is bad. Like a lion is not bad. A lion is a lion. A lion does what a lion does. But if a human being does what a lion does, it's wrong. And that's maybe, um, you know, the distinction you make between beast Like, okay, so, you know, another lion tries to get into my territory and I'm a lion and I whoop up on it, nobody gets upset. You know, that's what you'd expect a lion to do. But if my coworker in my cubicle next to me, you know, stands too close to me in my lunch and I smack him down, like I'm getting (laughs) fired. I'm getting fired for that because it's wrong. Like it's too big a response in uh, the human context. So, the human is an animal, but the question is, are we being the human animal or are we being a diminished version of our human capacity? You know, I grew up in a rough neighborhood. Like, there's a lot of kind of animal-like behavior there, but it was kind of a diminished version of a human capacity. So, it's not like what we want to model on. If I use lion rules in human society, I'm living less than what a human being should be. So, that's why I like this word mensch, you know, out of the Yiddish People say, oh, what a mensch. They mean like, well, you know, what a great person. But mensch literally means human being. 
And so the very fact that saying that about somebody means that they're special means that most of us are living below the line of what a human being could be. And I think that that's really important for us to think about. Are we living up to our capacity? And our capacity is the most natural version of us. Beautifully natural, but according to our capacity. A wolf is a wolf is a wolf, but a human being is often not a human being. And because we have so much capacity for consciousness, we have this reflexive awareness, we can either not live up to being a human being or we could. You know, so we, we have this really interesting problem of relationship to what we are. Like we need to be asking ourselves like a philosopher every day, what am I? What does it mean to be this? And am I being this well? And I think it comes back to what you were saying, Ramon, about like, you know, I'm not anti-science. Like, I love science, actually. But there's something it's not doing for us. Mm -hmm. It's not educating character. In fact, character is not one of its objects of analysis (laughs) or subjects. And so, the idea that like science is going to solve our problems is weird. Like, it's not doing that. You have to be philosophically minded spiritual. You have to go, is this all there is? You know, the way I'm being today, is this what I want to be? Is how I'm living how I want to live? We have to ask those questions. And if we're not asking those questions, you know, it's a question of what we're doing on this life. Like, we're being almost probably purely reactive if we're not asking those questions. That means I come home, I turn on the TV, or I look at my phone. You know, it's like a kind of automatic pilot life. Is any of it proactive? Well, I love the way you both responded to that. So I'm really happy I threw out that comment because I think both of your responses were really rich. And I love, Ramon, that you brought out the Abrahamic teachings around almost the particular intelligence significance of the human being. Because that feels like one of the justifications for the Abrahamic tradition's use and abuse of the environment. And yet I think it also has the potential to instill a responsibility. If we're the smartest creature on this earth, we have the highest responsibility. And it's almost like a parent's responsibility vis-a-vis little ones. You know, it's like you can imagine if an adult is like using the fact that they're more intelligent to steal a kid's food or something, we would look down upon that. That would be horrible. We have a responsibility to provide and to actually be great helpers, kind of the earth's greatest partner. And so I love that. Yeah. Yeah, So I love the flip side of that. You know, the same teaching can be used for destruction or used for creation and just kind of bringing us to a close because unfortunately we do have to wrap up here. I feel like a lot of my questions have been quite heady. And so I just want to take a second to allow for some heart space and just ask both of you, what is alive in your heart around this subject and what feels most inspiring in terms of going forward, whether that's personally for you, if you'd like to share, or more in terms of work that you're engaged in or would like to see happen in the collective When I think about that, my answer is kind of simple and inarticulate. You know, if you take me to that space, I almost want to cry. And it's something about, for me personally, the poverty of character. Like, it almost physically hurts to witness it right now. And I'm not trying to be judgy about any particular person or population on the planet. It just seems that we're suffering from that particular absence right now. And I feel like if I have any work, it's well upon myself in that regard, but also to be communicating that, boy, we have this enormous responsibility to one another, to love one another, to treat one another well. And, you know, it sounds maybe uh, childish or trite, but it's so big, so serious. And that's the problem that breaks my heart every day, that I think about every day. It's like, how are we going to educate character in such a way that we will man and woman up and human being up to take care of our responsibilities and, you know, be this possibility instead of, you know, living on the low end of it, you know, even below the low end of it. And it just, it almost hurts to watch it. 
you know, on the news. Like, I want to do something about that. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh yeah, I'm I'm already in that that verge of tears space. I'm just hit that in the last little bit here. And, you know, and it's not the only capacity I feel like we got to cultivate, but it's definitely one of them. I feel like man, we should all be moved to the verge of tears based on what's going on. You know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. like you know, both in terms of the way that people relate to themselves and to one another and to the fact that we are in this really pretty vicious feedback loop with the planet right now. Mm. So I don't know, a couple of things, this is kind of scattershot, but you know, as an educator, uh, I spend a lot of my time with youth. And I think in, in a way, the real goal of education is actually about character. And it's about helping people unfold the potentials that are inside of them, more so even than skills training, especially higher education. And yet people that care and that are heartbroken already about what's going on, we also need to be able to do something because the heartbreak's heavy and by itself will take you down. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you feel like it's so heartbreaking that you'd rather just numb out again mm-hmm. and just go on to, you know, do the low end theory, as, as Natunnel said. You know, so we do need to connect people to skill sets to basically, I, I don't know the term for it in the Jewish tradition. But it's basically like, is, is it Zadaka? Is that how you Zedaka. say it? Zedaka. Zedaka. Yeah, yeah, like the doing of justice. You know, the expression of your heart, the work that is a prayer. You know, I've been involved a bit with an organization that's working around food justice. And I feel like, you know, food justice, community gardens, food, it's instantly relatable. And it's also the most concrete manifestation of our inner being with the planet. And it's also one of the most basic understandings of what justice is. I don't eat and then look and see somebody next to me not eating when I have plenty. I mean, how many chapters of the Old Testament? (laughs) It's just basically about, yo, these people are not eating and you're, you're throwing food away. What can we do about this? So I don't know. I just think, yeah, I think food justice as a, as an approach to help me with the pronunciations of DACA. Sadaka, you know, yeah. Sadaka, you know, as, as an approach that is lively right now. It's like, how do we engage in the work to feed one another and to take the weight off of those that are producing the food and carry some of that weight ourselves? And how do we sculpt our living environments and develop a frame with nature where we don't, because I mean, that's one of the issues we're facing is we're about to wreck nature to such a degree that it can't feed us. You know, so how do we, the food will bring us into relationship with earth in a certain way. It can anyway, and it can bring us into relationship with one another. So that's just something that I have some peripheral involvement in that I think is popular now. And maybe that could be a place where there's some exploration around contemplative and spiritual traditions and then concrete action that people can take. Amen. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it goes back to that idea, like a lot of that biblical material is is old and its references are rich with basic needs. Feed the stranger, you know, and even if you go to Islam, like one of the hadith or reports of the Prophet Muhammad is that food is kind of infinitely shareable. Just keep dividing it until everybody's got a bite. At least they had a bite, you know. See, that's a value, you know, my wife Jamila comes from, you know, Arab culture, and there's a kind of phrase there. Uh, you know, you'd say so-and-so is of the people or not of the people. And so the person might be technically of the people, but the, by their behavior, you might go, they're not of the people. And, you know, and when we say that, we can say that across culturally and kind of know what we mean. Like, so-and-so is of the people, meaning that we shared, like, these really root values, like, you will eat in my house or near my house because there's going to be enough food for all of us because that's the value, you know, and all those people are of the people. And we're facing the moment where we look at ourselves as human beings and we have to decide whether we're of the people or not of the people, you know, for the people or not for the people. Mm -hmm. And there's one people, you know, and and we're unique and have lots of different interesting cultures. But there's one major concern, and it's just the people, you know, and the planet. My politics is pretty simple. It's people and planet. You know, what supports that? Um, Yeah. 
Good stuff. I know we've taken ourselves to near the end. So what do we need to do, Daniel? <laughs> well, just thank you so much. I just wanted to name that in your closing reflection, Ramon, I zoomed in on a phrase that you used. I might butcher it a little bit, but it's something about how do we turn our work into prayer or do work as prayer? And I feel like that's a beautiful sentiment and question to hold. And I'm realizing that I was remiss and did not ask you to bring anything to share. But we have started some little tradition of a poem or a quote or something. So by all means, you can pass. I know we're getting to the edge of your time. But if you have something that you'd like to offer, poem, song, quote, anything like that, just to cap us off, that would be lovely. First of all, thank you, Daniel and the Tunnel, for inviting me to the show. It's been really, really beautiful. And I think the thing that comes up for me is, I don't know the exact chapter of Deuteronomy, but it's, I lay two paths before you. It's basically life and death. Choose life so that you and your descendants will also have life. Mm, Amen. Amen. Shout out to friend of the show, Tree Fort of Golden Turtle Sound for producing the intro and outro music and assisting with mixing and mastering. Be sure to check out his awesome music and hit up Golden Turtle Sound for any of your audio engineering needs.